0: Listening to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. On Critical Faith, we explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We hear from researchers, activists, educators, students and more as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component to so many of our lives. Along the way, we also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities and communities. This week, we hear a lecture from Matt Bernico, Assistant Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. The lecture was part of our Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship seminar series, and Matt talks to us about decolonization and how we might decolonize Christian higher education. Next week, we'll also hear some questions and answers from that same seminar. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us, and it keeps us on their radar. You can find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Facebook at the Institute for Christian Studies and on Twitter at inschr, I-N-S-C-H-R.
1: Welcome everybody to uh, the Institute for Christian Studies, to our scripture, faith, and scholarship lecture series. Um, Let me just say a little bit about first who I am, and then uh, what the lecture series is all about, and then I'll introduce our speaker for today. So I'm Ron Kuypers, I'm the president of the Institute for Christian Studies, I'm the director of the ICS's Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and I'm an associate professor of the philosophy of religion, and um, today we're uh, happy to welcome uh, Matt Bernico to our Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship uh, lecture series. And uh, in Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship, um, the way I like to describe it is that ICS we're often what we're about is giving people opportunities to think intentionally about what their faith means uh, to all aspects of their lives, whether they're uh, part of an academic community or uh, part of non-academic communities, but Scripture, Faith and Scholarship is a chance for us academics at ICS to ask about how faith informs our practice, how it informs our scholarship, our teaching. Um, so Scripture, Faith and Scholarship, it's the relationship between Scripture and faith and how that guides and shapes what we do here at ICS. So it's its a moment for our, our community to intentionally think about that for ourselves uh, rather than curating an opportunity for other people to think about that. And then we invite people in for that discussion. So today we're very happy to welcome Matt Vernico. He's the assistant professor of media studies and communication at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. All right, got it. Um, he is uh, the editor of an anthology called Ontic Flows, Theorizing Digital Humanities. Um, and today uh, he's going to be speaking to us about uh, the title of his talk, is decolonizing Christian higher education. So, without further ado, Matt, I throw the floor over to you. Welcome. All right, thank you. Thanks, Dean, thanks Ron. Um thanks for all for coming. Appreciate you giving me a chance to
2: talk to you about some of my research um and some of the stuff I'm doing. It's pretty exciting. Um cool. Well, I have sort of a prepared paper and I guess I'll just read through it because that's what you do when you're a boring academic, so uh keeping in line with those traditions, I'll get into it. Um Cool. Uh, so in contexts like these uh, sort of academic engagements uh, where we have conversations about big ideas like ontology, modernity, and theology, there's a tendency to start from like an overly like disembodied sort of place. Um, and instead of starting with like the big ideas and disembodied ideas, uh, you know, I want to ground them in the flesh. I want to ground them in, uh, I guess, geography um, and my, my gatekeeping uh, credentials. So specifically I speak from the geography of a Midwestern U.S., person loaded with the privileges of being uh, a white dude in academia that's just laying on the table like in case it wasn't obvious um yeah so um with that being said you might be wondering like why i'm in front of you talking about uh decolonial theory and that's a really good question i don't know um i'll come back to it in a minute there's a whole reason behind it but um it is kind of weird uh kind of speaking uh in light of that privilege it's something kind of have to figure out um but first i guess let me set up the problem Uh, I guess, that that I come to the table with and like why this is important to me um, and where it's coming from. So this is a uh, problem that I first took up and understood as a, it's like an issue of institutional organization that I think will uh, express sort of my interest in decolonial theory and why it's important. So I'm the assistant professor of media studies at a small Christian liberal arts college in Southern Illinois. Um, On top of that, I'm also the assistant director of something called the Center for Visual Culture and Media Studies. Uh, and uh, it's also called the CBCMS. We have a nice logo. Um, that's, that's about it, though. Um, I'm not listing like, these credentials because like, they're impressive, because uh, they're not. Um, but I'm listing these credentials to sort of draw out a problem that exists between the geography I'm speaking from and the credentials that I have, and then sort of like the global cultures of epistemology. Uh, the CBCMS, uh, the Center for Visual Culture and Media Studies, is one of those academic initiatives that administrators really, really love. Uh, it's interdisciplinary. It's an interdisciplinary effort to create new academic programming between art, English, digital media, and communication. So it's a bunch of these different departments sort of working together to do, um, unique and interesting things for undergrads. Um, it's a program that's full of creative professors, creative students, and they're all making weird things that look great to prospective students and to potential donors. Um, that's why the institution loves it. You can imagine. Um, so the question that I keep coming up to, uh, coming back to though, sort of in this role of leadership in that department, is uh, the way that we sort of came up with the canon of what counts as a creative major. Um, why why art English digital media communication? Those are all great disciplines. I love it because like, I have to. Um, it's part of who I am. But there's like an underlying logic between that canonization that really bugs me. So like specifically, why do communication, my field in English, a field that's sort of tangentially related, uh, make the cut, but maybe a department like Spanish doesn't? Um, I don't want to be self-depreciating or concede too much about my discipline because I think it's great, and I love it, and like that's why I'm in it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I can't help but notice that there are curricular similarities between these programs. There are, there are more similarities than there are differences. Um, so to, to make this distinction seems kind of tenuous to me. Perhaps the biggest difference uh, is that one is in Spanish and the other two are in English. Uh, and then looking at the curriculum of the Spanish program, Um, If students enrolled in that program are are learning many of the same skills as students in English or communications say, then why do departments that trade in English language get to speak to the ideas of rhetoric, media, and literature, and all of their immortal universality, whereas Spanish is relegated to learning a language. It's uh, sort of demoted in the institution of, uh, of, of universities. So what bugs me here is that there are institutional and social hierarchies that prioritize legitimate academic discourses. This is, I mean, not surprising to us if we've ever read Foucault. Like, we know this happens. It's not surprising. Um, uh, there's something a little bit larger going on here than just sort of the discourses of, like, uh, like academia, though. Um, there's something going on with the prioritization of discourses, and they don't just stop at the level of institution. There's something above that. There's a broader uh, epistemic hierarchies that are at play sort of globally in the way we think about these uh, topics um okay so back to the question why am i doing this why am i the one in front of you talking about decolonial theory and not someone who's probably you know more fit uh li- like this is sort of their passion it's i kind of came into a secondary uh, a secondary kind of thing so academically this is a project that i started last year with a colleague who is determined to make sense of his identity as someone who is uh like Puerto Rican, puerto rican but also white um he like passes in white in, in most situations um and this this bugged him a lot. So he started getting into this idea of decolonial theory as a way to sort of figure out his own identity. Um, his name is John Burningham. He he's philosophy. He's an amazing scholar. Um, so uh, in conversations with him about these ideas of identity and how they sort of play out, um, I just became interested too. Um sort of he's my friend and he's interested. So I guess I'll be a good friend and become interested, too. It's a good way to get stuff done. I don't know. Just do what your friends are interested in. Shouldn't be that difficult. <laughs> um, it, it kind of struck me, though, that, um, like in these conversations with him, uh, that if it is, as Walter Manolo, who is a decolonial theorist, uh, explains, that there's a dark side to Western modernity, um, then those of us who are ranked higher in the. Uh, epistemological and racial hierarchy sort that sort of western uh western uh hegemony sets up we should start paying attention to the decolonial project a little bit more and i uh, i think at least try to destabilize coloniality in our academic work and pedagogy and our institutions uh coloniality isn't really like a sterile category it's hard to describe there's a lot going on um it's not something that you can just relegate only to political uh political issues and economic issues instead like when, when you get into sort of the history of the situation and the theory of the situation, it, it becomes clear that all social forces um, of colonizing countries and regimes were and are exercised toward the domination exploitation. Um, it's truly uh, an interdisciplinary problem. Uh, and and as a Christian scholar, it's also clear that the regime of the church is definitely no exception. Uh, from the erasure of First Nations cultures in residential schools, um, uh, or like the completely just Overwriting of an entire cultural system in the philippines christianity has a a history that's imbricated in the colonization and domination of people Uh, decolonial theory then has to deal with the epistemic and material realities tied up in the history of the west so the university let alone the christian university which is the place i teach um, is entangled in these issues in a way that would make the Gordian knot look like velcro shoes. It is undeniable that the colonial project has been supported, aided, and amplified by the academic and religious institutions that um, at least I benefit from. Uh, most Western institutions are complicit in colonialism, but the complicity of Christianity and academia run particularly deep. Some scholars in the decolonial project might even say, and they do say, that this complicity is too structural and just simply can't be undone in any, like, in any way you'd have to kind of get rid of it all um so maybe that's true i hope it's not but maybe um but as someone speaking from the place of the christian university uh this one specifically it's so nice (laughs) i love it i think there are some openings for like healing and change some some ways we can kind of pull back from that colonial perspective um that's my hope at least okay so uh, escaping completely i'm sorry escaping complicity with colonization is like way too optimistic Um, however i think that uh, with a drastic change of course charted by dedicated christian scholars like ourselves um, we can start working through some of these issues and find uh, a possible room for a different future so briefly i want to work through some of these issues in this talk Um, i want to explain coloniality and decoloniality uh, because those are terms that mean a lot of things i want to talk about uh, the archival mechanisms that reify western knowledge which is like a giant thing uh and then finally uh maybe just offer a few introductory sort of ideas and ways to decolonize to rethink um and to move away from sort of the uh, colonial uh project okay so um in a really famous talk at the university of berlin uh, puerto rican social theorist ramon Grosfoguel posed the following question how did we get to the point where male thinkers from five countries, Italy, France, Germany, United Kingdom, and the United States, became the epistemic foundation of the westernized university and the westernized global structure of power? One can observe any sociology department or any philosophy classroom in places as disparate as uh, Jakarta, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Berlin, or Milwaukee, and you're reading the same thinkers, the same texts, going over the same concepts. Moreover, these thinkers, texts, and ideas are deemed essential, not only to the disciplines in which they reside, but in many cases, these westernized ideas are, like, foundational for the general education of university students as such, right? Everyone reads Plato, everyone reads Kant, so forth, so on. Glove's point isn't that the curriculum in San Juan is too similar to the curriculum in San Francisco. Um... Rather, his point is that such curricular similarities point to an implicit epistemic order that determines what counts as knowledge uh, and what constitutes standards for scholarly rigor, what ways of uh, being in the world are acceptable. Grosfoguel is quick to say that epistemic order uh, isn't universal or absolute, but it's a very expansive network. It is hegemonic. It's a dominant epistemology that finds its center in the Euro-American North as opposed to those epistemologies of the South that we have deemed peripheral or secondary to the core epistemology of the global North. Uh, Grosfoguel contends that the social and historical experience that produced social theory, critical theory, etc., is basically founded on the basis of the exclusion of women in general, and men from non-Western locations. So we're talking about like 6% of the population determining the theories that you are supposed to master and apply to other cultures. It doesn't matter if you're studying a culture that's totally different from you. uh, You just have to translate that culture into the universally accepted ideas of Western epistemology. It's provincialism at its worst uh, masquerading as universalism. So pulling no punches, gross argues... Uh, that the foundational texts of most westernized universities are ultimately Euro-North American ethnic studies. This is a really fun way to start conceptualizing what we do, and it's a pretty critical way as well. Um, so moreover, instead of owning its geographical uh, particularity, Western epistemology has exported, uh, has exported along with the economic system of capitalism through the colonial uh, enterprises of the late 15th century and the refinement of the global trade network from 1492 to today. The globalized epistemic order, gross points out, is not simply a matter of historical coincidence or a kind of academic overstatement. It is, as Walter Manolo points out, a complex narrative whose point of origination was Europe, a narrative that builds Western civilization by celebrating its achievements while hiding at the same time its darker side of coloniality. Um... By coloniality, Manolo does not mean merely the physical colonies and practices of colonial nations, namely England, France, and Spain. Coloniality claims Manolo names the underlying logic of the foundation and unfolding of Western civilization from the Renaissance to today, which historically, uh, which historically, colonialisms have been constitutive of, um, although downplayed dimensions. Coloniality is the darker side of modernity aiding in the constitution of modernity while outlasting any particular colonial project. Thus, the analytic of coloniality, what Walter Manolo calls uh, decolonial thought, consists in working to unveil how the logic of coloniality is at work behind Western uh, epistemic hegemony. However, the the analytic of coloniality is but one aspect of the larger decolonial project. Decolonial thought denotes more than just the analysis in ways uh, the analysis of the ways in which the colonial matrix of power perpetuates euro-north american epistemologies and values it also attempts to unpack the narrative of modernity that accompanies the logic of coloniality from the other side of the colonial difference to discuss modernity from the uh, this point of view the point of the colonized and not the colonizers and the relentless project of getting us all out of the mirage of modernity and the trap of coloniality to grasp the various ways in which coloniality, modernity, and decoloniality are all interconnected, and why decolonial thought is pedagogically important for Christian scholars and teachers, uh, it's helpful to unpack each of these terms a little more carefully. As decolonial theorist uh, Nelson Maldonado-Torres points out, talk of coloniality and decoloniality can be very difficult for those who enjoy the privileges of academic life. Uh Whoops uh, like me, uh, within, within societies with a benevolent relationship to historically hege- hegemonic forms of religious practice like Christianity. Uh, it's like, uh, Mal- says, uh, anyone who introduces the question about the meaning, uh, and significance of colonialism and decolonization most likely faces a decadent and genocidal modern colonial attitude of indifference, obfuscation, constant evasion, and aggression typically in the guise of neutral and rational assessments of post-racialism and well-intentioned liberal values, education areas uh, where this modern colonial attitude tends to take hold and reproduce itself. Um, so I'm obviously not one of these people, but uh, it's, it's been interesting kind of parsing this out, how, how I can be someone who benefits from this uh, system of colonialism and then still trying to work against it. It's a very complicated thing. Um, so the academy itself is notoriously slow-moving, even as its members might desire the idea of change and, quote, liberal values. uh, Yet such values oftentimes extend only to the content of courses and not to the overall structures of universities and colleges as such. Craving to assuage the call and critique of decoloniality, universities develop ethnic studies departments, or a global perspectives requirement, leaving hegemonic disciplines intact while entertaining the idea of liberal tolerance and a multicultural understanding. Um, When... Uh, nice. Um, when asked to change the structure of a discipline or to consider the ways in which universities perpetuate the logic of coloniality, universities and the academics that occupy them bristle at enacting differences that actually make a difference while espousing the language of inclusion and tolerance. The need to engage with decolonial thought, however, is not obviated by the difficulties and challenges voiced by those who are skeptical of the needs for hearing and enacting the decolonial critique. The liberalism that Maldonado Torres calls out in the, uh, in the quote that I just read is not synonymous with the U.S. Democratic Party or certain kinds of cultural identities. Rather, liberalism here means a political ideology that facilitates a transition from vulgar legal forms of discrimination to, in many cases, less vulgar but equally or more discriminatory practices and structures. Think like the new Jim Crow or if you've read Michelle Alexander's book or something like that. Uh, That's all to say that Maldonado Torres is calling out the project of political liberalism birthed in the European Enlightenment and codified in such institutions as the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, and all varieties of colleges and universities. Uh, Liberal institutions in a modern colonial world, Maldonado Torres says, aim to advance modernity without realizing that doing so also entails the continuation of coloniality. Universities became centers of command and control which make them easy to militarize when opposition arises. Many students feel choked and breathless in this context. As was stated above, however, coloniality is, constitu- uh, is constitutive of European-style modernity itself. Oftentimes, European-style modernity is characterized as an extension of the European Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. Philosopher Alejandro Verega uh, claims that such enlightenment is defined as having an internal dualism, On the one hand, this is a quote, on the one hand it upholds the historical ideas of freedom, equality, and brotherhood, and on the other hand it understands reasoning in instrumental terms, where reason is equated with ratio, with calculation, with manipulation, and production, and as such as seen as a mechanism of power and domination. One thinks then of the ideas of freedom, of equality, exemplified in the works of Rousseau, the universal brotherhood accomplished through liberal ideas of philosophical anthropology and figures like Kant. Um, as well as the use of instrumental reason found in later thinkers like Comte um, as constitutive of a logic of modernity. These ideas began as theological concerns over conversations about salvation, but were transformed into ideals of progress and development in colonialized countries. The philosopher Santiago Castro Gomez, who I'm going to get back to a little bit later on, uh, refers to this position as what he calls a zero-point philosophy. Drawing on this formulation of the epistemic project of modernity, uh, Manolo kind of puts it this way. Basically, zero-point epistemology is the ultimate grounding of knowledge which which paradoxically is ungrounded or grounded neither in geohistorical location nor in biographic politics uh, uh, or in the biographic politics of knowledge, and it's hidden in the transparency and in the universality of what they call the zero-point. It is grounding without grounding. It is in the mind and not in the brain and in the heart. Every way of knowing and sensing... Uh, that do not conform to the epistemology and thesis of the zero point are cast behind in time and in the order of myth legend or folklore local knowledge and the like since the zero point is always in the present time and the center of space it hides its own local knowledge universally projected its imperiality consists precisely in its hiding in its lo- in its hiding its locality its geohistorical body location and in assuming to be universal and thus managing the universality to which everyone has to submit. So, as Manolo makes clear, European modernity emerges originally from a specific geographical location and amongst amongst a particular set of cultures. However, even as it emerges in this very particular geohistorical place, European modernity simultaneously universalizes its own form of objectivity, knowledge, and culture while erasing the specificity of its own origins. Thus, the other forms of knowledge are colonized and replaced with European modernity, as opposed to developing their own forms of modernity. How we define modernity matters a great deal because, as Vadega has said, the developments of the Enlightenment took concrete political form in the Americas one century before they did in in, uh, Europe. Indeed, zero-point epistemology is the site where epistemic colonial differences and epistemic imperial differences are mapped out. By absorbing acceptable or helpful differences and discarding the rest, European modernity, combined with colonialism, with devastating effects in Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, and beyond, these epistemic differences look. Uh, these epistemic differences took on material form in the systems of racial and ethnic hierarchy that persisted throughout the colonial era and remain, uh, remain influential, especially in contemporary Latin American politics. They also took concrete form in the relegation of indigenous thought to the realm of myth and religious practice, while European ideas of knowledge, politics, and morality were regarded as objective and scientific. The result of such epistemic hegemony is that it tells at least two lies. First, the zero-point epistemology lies about its geographic and cultural origins, and second, it lies about the illegitimacy of indigenous modes of thought, cultural values, and systems of knowledge. Although some may say that such a epistemological hierarchy is a thing of the past, it is precisely in the continuation of European-style modern ideas of disciplinarity, of canon, of legitimate and illegitimate knowledges in university curriculums and departmental requirements that perpetuate the sidelining of indigenous and decolonial forms of knowledge. So, um, as outlined above, actively decolonizing knowledge, It's happening all over the world there are research groups for it tons of scholars sort of invested in this um practice um and uh but for christian scholars to ally themselves with these decolonial practices they got to start thinking about it a little bit harder they need to start one recognizing scholarly canons are constructed to support the hegemony of colonizers and two to understand trust believe and legitimize the local knowledges of decolonial individuals and scholars And then finally, three, the decolonization of knowledge doesn't mean just adding new courses to our content, but uh, an overarching systemic change in the way universities reproduce specialized knowledge. For example, uh, learning about U.S. history within the epistemic hierarchy of the West uh, is very different than learning about U.S. history from the local knowledges of Latin America. Um, so, in support of these goals, I'll quickly demonstrate the ways that archives and canons hold and reproduce political power in uh, politically liberal societies, and what it uh, might mean to rethink the archives of Western academia at large. Uh, the point here isn't to legitimate decolonial knowledge so that we can somehow subsume it into our colonial hegemonies, but instead to begin correcting a skewed epistemological order uh, to include those that have been systemically excluded. Um, Okay, so um, many media philosophers... uh, Media philosophers is a term that uh, isn't so important here, but I'll use it anyways. Many media philosophers have posited much about the archive and its powerful function because there's so much to unpack in terms of the archive as it sort of functions technically. Um, So to get some of these ideas, I'm going to use Jacques Derrida's work uh, Archive Fever um, to create some conceptual handles for dealing with an idea as commanding and uh, encompassing as the archive. Um, Many... um, so, so the, the word archive, I mean, this kind of happens in every sort of text anyone ever talks about the word archive in. But the word archive contains multitudes. It means so many different things. There's a ton going on in this word, right? It means um, uh, arcane, like means to begin, to be first, to be led. Archos means the origin. Archeon refers to like the seat of power. Uh, but the Greek root, root archae, we see sort of multiple meanings that point towards what's bound up in the practice of archiving uh, the practice of canonizing um, both the ideas of commencement and commandment are sort of central central themes to this word. Uh, commencement signals a sequential principle where the archive catalogs articles chronologically whereas commandment expresses the justive function of the archive which empowers archivists to make critical judgments concerning what goes in and what order they go in and what excuse me must stay out. Overall Uh Derrida Derrida recognized what he calls the Archontic Principle that unifies, identifies, and classifies under the power of consignation. At this level of conceptual understanding, the point the point of the archive is to amass relevant articles and to judge the intensity of their belonging and where they should go and where they fit in. Uh through Derrida's recognition of the main archival principles, one can begin to get a handle on how to think about archivization as such, as a technical practice. However, there are two additional media specific meta archival points that lay just above the archive itself. The archive has principles of compiling and sorting, but just above that there are some limits latent in the design of what archives do that will shed more light on the technical and epistemic functions. So first to say that the archive only conserves sequential articles misses the friction uh that the form of the archive itself produces. Derrida explains this quite esoterically uh with uh, I think one of my favorite quotes of all time The technical structure of the archiving archive also determines the structure of the archivable content, even in its very coming into existence and its relationship to the future. So what this means is that the archive is not like a smooth process of acquiring data, but to an extent, the archive itself creates the historical event that it archives. While of course the historical article would exist regardless of it, regardless of its archivization, the archive alleviate, or elevates the object's archontic status toward more relevant human relationships. The point here isn't that uh, the, the point here is that uh, some of the some articles that carry more significance to institutional archival logics, and some just don't. Um, After all, the history that people actually care about shows up in places like museums and not someone's basement or attic. The archive is a mechanism that places objects in the right places, according to a certain logic. Uh, Further, uh, the archive only archives what is actually archivable, uh, which means that this creates problems uh, for the histories that are expressed in oral uh, media shortcomings in archivable processes necessarily exclude some articles and artifacts. The meta archival discourse concerning what is and is not archivable is expressed most poignantly in Brian O'Doherty's book Inside the White Cube. O'Doherty uh, gives uh, insight into the ways the construction design of art gallery space have changed how art is and looks. Um, It is no mistake, uh, this was surprising to me, but it is no mistake that paintings are square and flat. That's the way that they're sort of the, the gallery space is designed so O'Doherty explains that uh, we have now reached a point where we see not the art but the space first a gallery is constructed along laws as rigorous as those uh, for building a medieval church the outside world must not come in the point is that while there is a certain logic that acts as a gatekeeper to the archive the gate is only designed to let certain formats in as a matter of design potentiality second one institution archives is not done transparently. There is still another principle that guides both the commencement and commandment that is only seen through a glass darkly. There's no archive of archival logics. However, to speculatively create an archive of archival logics is a project that, looks, uh, that would look for like, what's been left out, who's excluded, and uh, what is exalted above other things, and maybe rebalance that. So while keeping these media philosophical points in mind, one can begin considering the archive more critically. One critical point that emerges quite clearly is that the archive is, the juridical, is a juridical organ of institutions. However, um, here there's a change in scope. Departing from the archive as such and moving to the archive as an impulse to consign, incorporate and organize epistemic structures of knowledge. The second sense of archive references the material mechanisms that prioritize Western epistemology, uh, Western epistemological paradigms that include interlocking regimes of governments, organized religion, disciplinary systems like academia, and a bunch of others. Uh, Derrida goes so far to say that the archive is a force that exercises the powers of an institution in order to assure its conservation. It's a force that chronologically cat- uh, catalogs as well as decides and judges the legitimacy of an artifact uh, or an article. So no institution can come into existence without its archive, and no institution will continue to exist without its archive. The juridical function of the archive is what Derrida calls the violence of force. Uh, It builds a body of articles and artifacts through the imposition of a rule of law and a rule of exclusion. The term violence of force, as I'm sure you guys all know, signals a point of inspiration for Derrida, Walter Benjamin, and his essay, Critique of Violence. Uh, Derrida's explanation of the juridical function of the archive is powered by Benjamin's larger insight concerning the confluence between violence and law. Uh, Benjamin explains uh, this relation saying, all violence as a means, is either law-making or law-preserving. If it lays claim to neither of these predicates, it forfeits all of its validity. The point of making this connection demonstrates that the archive is a technology employed towards state-building, uh, state-building disciplinary punishment, colonial expansion, profit accruing, and the reification of ideologies. Archives are arranged and organized by an opaque principle that are themselves uh, essential in the validation of conservational and exclusionary violence. The archive establishes the official opinion or narrative of a situation and to control these validated forms of knowledge is to wield power over others who cannot establish legitimate knowledges. It's all, it's at this point, uh, that this section can begin to speak about the relationship between epistemic hierarchy produced in colonialist projects and the archive. Many scholars, especially in Latin America, set out to describe and subvert the, uh, subvert colonialism through critique, critiquing the ways Western institutions push the knowledge of colonized people to the side and discredit it as uh, less than knowledge produced through the regimes of seemingly objective Western techno science. The critiques supplied by Ramon Grosfoguel, Enrique Dussel, Walter Manolo, Santiago Castro Gomez, and others are invaluable. Uh, while they do the heavy lifting of the critique, uh, it's left up to others to take up these criticisms to heart and rethink the the academic archives in both their logic and design. And in doing so, Hopefully, we can practice a new mnemonic technology that makes new decolonial worlds possible. In light, of these, in light of these observations, it's clear that suggesting some new mode of organizing and preserving knowledge is far too big for like a, this talk. We can't just do it in like 45 minutes. Um, it's basically like a pretty revolutionary project that uh, I guess if people were invested in, it would have to be carried out for generations. However... Um, Where Western scholars can begin to think through these tumultuous issues is with opening their own personal classrooms, reading lists, and curricula to voices and to places that are usually pushed to the periphery uh, or left out of the canons of Western scholarship altogether. Uh, The point isn't to introduce new policy on including X number of other voices, but instead to reorient the regime of epistemic hierarchy, um, less hierarchy and more sort of rhizomatic assemblages of knowledge where we can put different people in dialogue with one another rather than uh, you know, valuing one type of knowledge above another. Christian institutions specifically ought to find this instruction particularly compelling because it's in the Christian DNA to be hospitable and open towards the other, especially when history demonstrates the perfection of teni- techniques of othering. Uh, further, rethinking whose voice, uh, whose voice uh, and accounts are allowed into our intellectual archives and canons gives students the opportunity to know what other, others outside North America and Europe can reveal um, new insights throughout criticisms. In in short, it it begins the work of expanding the imagination behind uh, how one understands academia and how students understand their place in the world. Okay, it's the final section here. This project uh, laid out out above is the platform for Lifetime's work. To begin rebuilding a new academic hegemony in Christian higher education requires a complete reformation of thought. Not a university with one type of knowledge, but a pluriversity. Plural in the sense that knowledge is produced within cultural situations, and to take all knowledges just as seriously as our own, requires the representation of heterogeneous thought throughout curriculum and institutional goals. A new organization with higher, within higher education necessitates that the racism, and sexism, and national chauvinism grounding production of knowledge in the West must be demythologized and overturned. To do this work, scholars in Christian higher education must hope, similar to the Zapatistas and Shoppas, that another world is possible. And that another pedagogy is possible. So um, I'll conclude a few thoughts on maybe what that looks like. So uh, decolonial concerns, whether they are housed under the label or not, are nothing new to Christian colleges and universities, uh, the academy at large. We've done things like this before, but rarely do we call it this and rarely do we take up this sort of critical stance about it. Um, many Christian colleges and universities have incorporated global studies or cross-cultural components into their general education curriculum, while many others have developed a variety of academic majors in the, uh, the area of what we might just call ethnic studies. The logic of these programs and curricular initiatives is fairly simple. If Christianity is a global missionary phenomena, then students should know something about cultures other than their own, where their own culture typically means the white Euro-American culture. Given the historical missionary drive of Christian educational institutions, this argument for implementing ethnic studies programs is fairly compelling, yet it's not without significant problems. Ethnic studies and area studies belong with... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, ethnic studies and area studies along with them emerged in the 1960s uh, in, the, in American universities as well as a result of the longstanding push for a, quote, University of the Third World, which didn't just teach hegemonic Euro-American history, culture, and values, but took the history, culture, and values of underrepresented groups seriously. However, as Maldonado Torres argues, those committed with the, I'm sorry, those committed with the liberal arts curriculum and division of knowledge – Tend to see ethnic studies as an undesirable field, whose relation to social movements make it suspect. As an unsophisticated scholarly practice that is haunted and fundamentally limited by feelings of nostalgia, cultural nationalism, or ethnic na- essentialism. That is to say, uh, chances to the curriculum. Uh, I'm sorry. That is to say, changes to the curriculum in favor of incorporating ethnic studies or areas uh, tend to be a matter of begrudgingly altering a few readings or creating a single course requirement rather than a serious consideration of the ways in which curricula are, uh, are disciplining in the Foucauldian sense in formational institutions. This is not to say that students do not benefit from these programs, because they do, they're fine. Um, rather, it's to say that the, that such efforts do not go far enough. And as Maldonado Torres points out again, uh, when push comes to shove, defenders of liberal arts education, and humanists in particular, tend to distance themselves from ethnic studies when their own disciplines come under scrutiny or attack. Maldonado saves his strongest critique for those disciplines contained under the umbrella term of just the humanities. While there is no shortage of epistemic hegemony present uh, present within the social science, Maldonado singles out the humanities precisely because they are, along with ethnic studies, uh, they're perceived as fields that uh, do not produce profit. Humanities disciplines uh, thus characterize the so-called crisis of the university uh, in in the relatively simplistic terms of economics or corporatization, over and against the traditional education of the whole person found in liberal arts education. Thus, Maldonado Torres argues, The great crisis of the age of the university is presented in terms of an encounter between the liberal humanities and neoliberalism, a duality that preserves the presuppositions that keep interdisciplinary and emancipatory fields like ethnic studies as a temporary complement uh, of the humanities or as a threat. So long, uh, so long as the humanities position themselves within the binary opposition of humanism versus economic instrumentalism, anything that calls the current constitution of the humanities discipline into question or offers critiques are seen as aiding the side of economic reductionism. In other words, only what is profitable or aiding the side of economic reduction, uh, I'm sorry, only what is profitable or perpetuates the current economic and cultural hegemony has value and the only force to combat such reductive construction of meaning arises from the humanities. But Malnau Torres points out that a purely economic analysis of the crisis of the university and the precarious position of the humanities within said crisis needn't be the only way to analyze struggles of higher education and the value of particular disciplines. The crisis of value faced by humanities, in light of neoliberal economic policies, produces, quote, the kind of questioning that communities of color have usually faced. They do not produce value and must constantly attempt to prove their right to exist. Model Torres thus concludes that neoliberalism seems to be informed by the logic of racism. Indeed, as the humanities suffer the brunt of racial logic, people of color and the forms of knowledge most relevant to them become not merely unproductive, but outright dangerous. Why would these forms of knowledge be seen as dangerous? Because, by and large, decolonial forms of knowledge involve delinking from the very logic of racial capital that neoliberalism and the corporate university uses. Universities, Melnado Torres continues to hypothesize, become more and more white, um, white spaces, delegitimizing and deemphasizing certain bodies and knowledges, while providing incentive for human, uh, incentive for humanities and other academic discourses to further incorporate uh, corporate values into their field. The temptation for the humanities, uh, Melnado Torres asserts, would be to show that they are not, or that they are the depositories of a better form of whiteness, without ever calling it that or recognizing it as such. Uh, than the one that is now put in the humanities at the level of unproductive people of color. That is, the temptation for the humanities is to reconceive of themselves as the houses of the best beliefs, the best ideas of the West, without actually engaging in the kinds of rigorous self-critique that decolonial thinkers have called for. Humanities courses then become hagiographic surveys of great thinkers, including scholars of color and women, without thinking through the forms of knowing that they reinforce. Changing one or two of the readings is a nice gesture, but doesn't go far enough. So, what Maldonado Torres offers as a corrective to the problem of the humanities and neoliberal racist logic is the following. It would be a fundamental mistake to critically evaluate the attack on the university today and the position that the humanities face only in relation to economics or neoliberalism. Race, racism, and neo-apartheid are equally important considerations, as well as the legacies of colonialism, slavery, and heteropatriarchy, and all these must be looked at in interconnected ways. Doing so is part of the very analytic framework that ethnic studies and related fields often follow. As a result, the contrary to the desire of self-preservation, it seems to me that the humanities can do better, is to expand their analytic vision, recognizing the racial logic operating in the context of increasing apartheid and take emancipatory and decolonial epistemological projects more seriously, even to the point of considering a transition from the emphasis on liberal arts training to the, cultiva- for the cultivation of emancipatory and decolonial acting and thinking. Rather than focusing on carving out a space with neoliberal orders of meaning and economics for humanities disciplines to survive, These disciplines should embrace the kind of questioning that has been going on in ethnic and area studies for years. Interdisciplinary, intersectional, and pluriversal analyses are what is needed in place of disciplinary gatekeeping. Thus, Maldonado Torres offers offers both a critique of humanities and general education curricula while also offering a way forward. It's by delinking from westernized epistemic hierarchies and ways of being in the world, embracing geographical knowledge and border thinking, and promoting pedagogies of loving that universities can uh, educate against domination and neocolonialism. The first task of decolonial epistemology, Manolo tells us, is learning to unlearn in order to relearn and rebuild. He, uh, A quote from Manolo is, uh, We will find our sources not necessarily in the canon of western thought, but in the corpus of decolonial thinkers the imperial language uh the imperial languages of institutions um this task requires rethinking the ways in which epistemology and by extension pedagogy is fundamentally geopolitical to educate is always to educate from somewhere and among a particular people thus to delink from the supposed universality of the western canon and from the order of westernized education is to open oneself to the possibility of a pedagogy that actively pursues liberation from those hegemonic orders and liberation uh, f- uh, and liberation for working towards the construction of a more just and equitable world. But the work of delinking must be undertaken in earnest. It cannot simply be done as a matter of changing a few books in the syllabus. To so delink is first to do the critical work of unlearning the implicit trust in westernized forms of educating and the supposed universality of its canon of thought, and to turn towards learning how to construct a decolonial epistemology and a decolonial imagination. In concrete terms, what does uh, decolonial pedagogy look like for westernized universities, let alone Christian universities and colleges? It looks like a double movement of curriculum against domination and a pedagogy, uh, a pedagogy of relationality and lovingness. A curriculum against domination does not normalize the narratives of modernity that uphold the present westernized matrix, matrix, matrix of power. Instead, curricula opposed to domination uh, makes uh, makes such narrative problems to be examined and understood. They treat uh, they treat much of the canon of Western thought not as universal but as a form of Euro-American ethnic studies, and emphasize the ways in which Eurocentrism, colorism, racism, and economic inequalities all work to produce a colonial matrix of power that represses the freedom of all, as Noah de uh noah de Lusavoy says uh curricula needs to be su- i'm sorry curricula needs to systemically center both historical and contemporary contributions to all domains uh that have emerged from outside the united states and europe but also those marginalized within such curricula would uh, reconstruct the boundaries of disciplines and the logic internal to them while also giving uh giving Africana, Latinx, Indigenous, LGBTQ perspectives and struggles a strategic priority. Curricula Against Domination moves beyond engaging uh, in critique and looking for otherized, uh, otherized voices. Um, it provides students with a framework for imagining a new glo- uh, new global knowledge, culture, and society. Thus, curriculum is less a name for a set of organized content or a particular set of educational practices, but more about the uh, designation of a process of constructing itself within a decolonial framework. Okay, so conclusion. The Christian mission is one where we bear witness to the life of Jesus Christ, uh, that we and we put this into practice for Christian higher education, which means doing our part in opposing the domination of people by the forces of uh, colonialism, nationalism, racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and capitalism. Christian scholars ought to make their scholarship and teaching work in whatever way against the hegemonic structures that keep Western epistemic hierarchies in place. The incredible stress of colonization cannot be ameliorated through hollow attempts at reconciliation. Instead, we must pursue systemic epistemic justice. On the instructor's syllabi, this might look like including diverse voices and new new perspectives to frame the topic, although in this... uh, although this alone is not enough. In the classroom, one might practice engagements that prize collaboration over competition. Uh, for program directors, it might mean curriculum that pays attention to topics outside the usual Anglo- Anglo-American discourse and can contextualize the liberal arts in terms of epistemic context. For administrators, this might mean hiring international scholars and reframing the importance of language requirements for uh, Uh, or, or perhaps it means pushing against aggressive encroachment by academic accreditation agencies that seek to reinforce Western and specifically neoliberal epistemic hegemonies. If Christian scholars seek to bear witness to the person of Jesus Christ by practicing hospitality, neighborliness, and justice, they must begin by burning the candle at both ends, not only developing new decolonial pedagogies, but also fighting for epistemic shifts at the level of institutional politics. Decolonizing the Christian university is more of an eschatological hope than it is a project that one can undertake with a checklist in a committee. But uh, to hope for justice is itself a Christian practice. So we pray for justice. We pray for the decolonizing of our institutions and toward the liberation of all people. Thanks.
0: listening to Critical Faith. If you liked what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. Also, you can catch up with us again on social media, on Facebook at the Institute for Christian Studies, and on Twitter at inschr. I-N-S-C-H-R. Next week, we'll hear some questions and answers from Matt's talk, and we'll talk to you then.